I want to welcome you to Young Adults Today podcast, where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. I'm going to toss it over to our hosts, Micah and Josiah Keneally. Hey guys, it's Josiah, and before we dive into today's episode, I want to share an exciting update with our Young Adults Today fam. Here's the thing. Everything we do with Young Adults Today, whether it's a podcast, books, resources, conference, content, is centered around the heart of Christ and really three things. The first is building relationships that can last a lifetime. The second is creating resources that are useful. And the third is to create rallying points that are catalytic for leaders and ministries to reach the next generation as we make disciples. So we have a prayer and a goal to take everything we're doing to the next level. And that is an invitation to you to join our Patreon. Patreon allows you and us to partner together for the kingdom of God and the heart of Christ to grow young adults today. You can find out more and jump on board by visiting patreon.com slash today. Thanks so much, and here's for today's episode. What's up, guys? Hope you're feeling alive right now. I'm Mike Keneally, and I want to welcome you to the Young Adults Today podcast, where we talk about reaching young adults in our world and our generation today. Amazing. And I'm joined, like always, with my best friend, my husband, Josiah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Guys, it's fun to come into your headphones, your stereos, your office spaces, and it's fun to record in studio with you today. It truly is. And if you are tuning in for the very first time and you've never heard us, you don't know what this is about, you can expect to find new episodes every Monday morning. So if you want to go back and listen to anything, or if you are excited and eager to know who's up and coming on the next conversation, stay tuned. And we'd love to hear your insight. So if you want to rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast, please do so. And you can do that at youngadults.today. And we have a very special guest coming to the studio with us today. And his name is Dominic Doan. How are you doing, Dominic? Welcome. I'm doing so well. It's so good to be on the show with you guys. We are excited. And Dominic, our paths have crossed online recently Mm -hmm. and did a little bit of a phone call and just felt such a kindred spirit and heartbeat with you and really excited to welcome you onto the show. And listeners, today we want to talk about faith Mm -hmm. and doubt. So if you have tough questions, um, first of all, they're welcome, they're valid, they're wanted. And um, this episode is really going to be geared for you if you're questioning or having doubts, curious if doubt is good or bad. We're going to dive deep Mm -hmm. into that with our new friend, Dominic Doan, and he is the founder of Pursuing Faith author of an amazing book that I've been reading on my Kindle, When Faith Fails, and he has his master's in theology, as well as he's pursuing his PhD, both from the University of Oxford, really cool, and he has served as a pastor in Portland, Oregon, North Carolina, and Hawaii. How about that? And uh, Dominic has also taught English for companies in Europe, lectured in theology and history at various Christian colleges and universities. He's worked as a radio DJ and lived as a missionary in Vanuatu and Mexico. He and his wife, Alyssa, have a daughter, Amelia, and a fuzzy golden doodle, Bella. So how about that? Dominic, once again, welcome. And where we'd like to, of course, what, where we'd like to start is see if you'd be willing to share some of your journey and the story of your life and ministry. Absolutely. 
And as you mentioned, I do have a fuzzy golden doodle who happens to be with me here in the office. So if she barks for some reason, that's her. But uh, first of all, it's so it's such an honor just to meet you guys and uh, to hear some of your story and our conversation that we had a month ago or so. And I, I really believe in what you're doing and just sense God's spirit anointing on you. So such a, an honor to be a part of this. Um, yeah, so my, my journey, it's kind of hard to encapsulate because we've been in so many different places. Uh, I was born in Oxford, England. Uh, you'd never guess it based on the accent, although I still do say tomato. That's like the one word I refuse <laughs> to relinquish. <laughs> uh, but when I was eight, we moved to Southern California had an interesting upbringing. I share some of that in my book and then graduated high school in Oregon, went on the mission field for several years, starting in Mexico for a year and then a place called Vanuatu. I was there for three years living uh, in the jungle, no electricity, no running water, lived in a hut and uh, teaching out there. That was an incredible, incredible experience. In fact, I opened the book with a, a funny story from there. And then from, from Vanuatu, moved back to Oregon, then over to Europe and um, pastored out in Hawaii, suffering for Jesus there. And um, <laughs> we were on the island of Maui, not a bad place to pastor, if I could tell you. Um, although one interesting thing about pastoring there is you every Sunday, it's like 50% tourists. So wow. you can tell the same story over and over and no one would ever know. Um, and then we went from there back to Oxford, and uh, that's where I did the master's. And then from Oxford, went to Portland, and uh, we were there for almost a decade, pastoring a church out there called Westside. And then uh, after the first year we were there, we planted a sister church in North Carolina, then came back to be lead pastor of the church in Portland. And that's where we were up until recently. And then uh, God put on our heart to start this ministry called Pursuing Faith. And the heartbeat behind the ministry is to help people who are walking through seasons of doubt and deconstruction, to help disciple them back to a place uh, of soul formation and the way of Jesus. Wow, that's so good. And what a journey that you've been on from Seriously. in state, out of state, on an island, back to the states. I mean, this, not only just the locations are very di different, the spiritual climates are yeah. very different. Mm -hmm. I oh have been goodness. out to the Portland, Oregon yeah. area several times and just, it's just a different feel out there. You feel, if you're in tune <laughs> with the spirit on any level, you can walk yeah. into certain places and you feel the heaviness or you feel yeah. different aspects. And then I'm sure just going to, to England and all mm. over the place, like there are just different things that God is doing throughout, you know, history, but also throughout the current times in which we live. And one of the themes that we see in, in our life, in the line of work that we are in, yeah. is doubt seems to be a normal mm -hmm. thing, but yep. doubt can feel like a guilty thing or a shame-filled thing, or mm -hmm. I was raised this way and brought up this way. Why, where and why and how can I ask the questions about doubt mm -hmm. if nobody, you feel like you're the only one, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and many people feel guilty having those doubts, <clears throat> excuse me. And you write are about a season of doubt that Mother Teresa shares in her journal, as well as mm -hmm. Billy Graham also went through some times just like that. Mm -hmm. How would you encourage the person who might be struggling with doubt in their personal lives right now, or maybe in their mm -hmm. ministries, or maybe like this, the concept of God or just doubt in general? 
Yeah. Wow. Well, you nailed about half of what I wanted to Uh-oh. say there. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's so true um, what, what you said, because you're not alone. When you go through a time of doubt, I think one of the, the ways the enemy loves to use that in our life is to make us feel a sense of shame or that there's something wrong with us or that God's upset with us. Um, but doubt is part of the journey. And this is one of the things I lay out in the first part of the book. In fact, I, I start in chapter one, which has some interesting Augustinian vibes in it, kind of latent in the text. Um, but I, I start the book by talking about the way God created the world. And so often our theology of doubt as followers of Jesus comes from Genesis 3 rather than Genesis 1. Mm. And if we take our theology from Genesis 3, then we look at doubt as the great nemesis of faith, right? Because Satan used doubt to help bring about the fall of humanity. And we're like, look, doubt is evil, right? And of course, doubt can be used for nefarious ends. Um, But I would want to push back the argument to, to Genesis 1 where God creates a world intentionally with limits, uh, with boundaries and barriers, while at the same time placing us in this world, he makes us intensely curious to wonder what's on the other side of these boundaries and limits. So an infinite God creates a finite world, which in and of itself is an interesting philosophical point, because if you have an infinite God creating something, by definition, it's going to be finite, unless he's duplicating himself, in which case you have polytheism. But God didn't do that. He created a infinite world he placed us in it and of course then we're going to have questions and what i argue in this book and it's kind of a rabbinic way rather than a greco-roman way that i think we've adopted almost a platonic way um the rabbinic way is asking questions should be part of the growth experience uh the philosopher michael novak he said that doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into different camps as it is a razor's edge which runs through every soul. And so I would argue that doubt, it's normal. You're not alone. It's part of the complicated, enigmatic mess of what it means to be human. And we live in a moment right now where deconstruction, doubt, questions about faith, Christianity, the church, Bible, it's at an all-time high. People are leaving the faith because one of the primary reasons is they don't know what to do with their doubts. And this is why this conversation is so vital, it's so timely, it's so important, because we need to give people the tools and resources to process their doubts, to know the the filter through which to perceive them and understand them, and then also have some really powerful, I think, healthy ways to respond to them. Because right now, it seems like everyone has these questions, whether it's fueled by physical loss or you know, our family, we, we lost several family members the last couple of years, and one in four Americans has lost someone because of the pandemic. So there's a lot of pent-up grief and angst that people have, and, and that's going to fuel doubt that could be related to intellectual questions or scientific questions, a spiritual crisis. God, where are you? Here's a big one, disillusionment with the church. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, young people in particular, they, they see how the church has responded to certain global political events the last couple of years. They, they see these epic failures of well-known Christian leaders and scandals. Uh, they, they see division within the church, and they're like, I don't want anything to do with that, right? And so we, we've got to talk about it, and we've got to discern, okay, what is healthy doubt? What's unhealthy doubt? What's healthy deconstruction? What's unhealthy deconstruction? And here are some ways that we can walk through it together. 
I'm like, it's so important because these are the questions that maybe we're getting texts and DMs from college students and from young adults every day or on the college campus. These are the questions that mm-hmm. young people are asking. Can mm-hmm. I trust the Bible? Can I read yeah. the Bible? Like, um, and in addition to that, like, what about Jesus and salvation mm-hmm. and his return? Are, are these things real? Yeah. And uh, I think that there's such value in wrestling, like you just touched yeah. on. Mm-hmm. And, um, but to, to touch on something you just said, Dominic, is like so many people have these questions, mm-hmm. but the model of maybe how a church service lends itself is a little mm-hmm. bit more dialogue or sorry, monologue mm-hmm. than dialogue. And so I think where I want to go with this conversation is asking the question for people who are sincerely questioning, having doubts, who are people and where are places that are both welcoming of questions and safe places to process doubts. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a really interesting point because you're right. And the way we've structured our, our churches tends to be more, you show up and you're a spectator, you're a consumer essentially. Right. And you, you, you take in the music, you take in a, a sermon, and, and then you go your way. And I'm not knocking that. Like, I was a pastor for 20 years in different places, and um, that, that there's only so many ways that you can take the ingredients of a church service and make it unique, especially if the church is larger in size. I think where the money is, where the real grit and where the true conversations are going to happen it's going to be outside of those larger type gathering venues. It's going to be in small group stuff, things like what you're doing, actually. Um, it, it's going to be in, it's relational. Um, and I think there are certain ways we can curate our church services, absolutely, to be a welcoming place, whether it's doing a sermon series on questions that people have. Uh, that's something we've done a, a number of times, and that's been a helpful tool. Uh, whether it's you know providing an environment where people can bring their prayers and, and get counsel you know there uh, in the service. But by and large, I think it's going to be relational and it's going to be walking with the people that we're mentoring and counseling, discipling in the day-to-day trenches of life. Um, typically, the way I've seen churches respond and, and faith communities respond to those who doubt, uh, is one of two ways, and neither one is good. I, I think probably the most prevalent is to demonize your doubt, and that is you come here, just put on the, the mask, the happy face, and sing, and take in the words, don't say anything that's going to rock the boat, and, and then leave. Um, and, and that kind of environment causes people to suppress their doubt, but gr- doubt's greatest strength is actually secrecy. It's not until we drag it into the light that it can become healing and redemptive. Another response that we see is not so much to demonize doubt, but to idolize doubt. And in in this polarity, you can see on one hand, more conservative churches, which tend to demonize, more liberal churches, which tend to idolize. And in that context, you're just told, hey, your doubts are true, right? And therefore, you get certain theological streams that throw it all out. Well, we don't really need to believe the Bible. We don't really need to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I would argue is actually both polarities are wrong and unhealthy. A true response to doubt, and you mentioned it, I love that you said this word, is to wrestle with God and with others through our doubts. That's the key. And so as leaders, we need to ask the question, how do we 
and foster an environment wherein people can wrestle, where people can be honest, where people know this is a safe space where I can get prayer. I can be honest about what I'm going through. I'm not going to be judged or shamed or sidelined. And I'm going to be instead welcomed. And when you think about it, that's how Jesus did his ministry. No one showed more mercy to the doubters than Jesus, whether it's Thomas, right? Or John the Baptist languishing in a prison cell. He's like, hey, are you the one? Or should we look for another? I mean, talk about, talk about doubt. He, he's like, I don't know if you're the Messiah. And this is the same guy that baptized Jesus, yep. that saw the spirit come on him, that heard the father say, this is my beloved son. In you, I'm well pleased. And if he had doubts, chances are we will, will too. But Jesus, he, he didn't shame him or belittle him. Instead, the way he responded to John the Baptist's doubt was to say, hey, that's the greatest prophet that ever lived, right? So what if we had instead that kind of posture? showing mercy to the doubter, loving the doubter, Jesus on the mountain in Matthew chapter 28. I'm preaching now, sorry. But in Matthew 28, it says some worship, some doubt it, right? It's a great commission. Preachers love to teach on this. Go into the world, preach the gospel. We miss the part often where it says some worship, some doubt it. And he sent them both out. I would probably divide the worshiper from the doubter. I'd be like, okay, worshipers, you're sent down. <laughs> Doubters, go get more training or whatever. Um, ten, attend the course of Josiah. But Jesus, he's like, I'm sending y'all out. Go preach the gospel. Go share the good news. And they turn the world upside down. So there is space in our faith for those who say, I have strong faith, resolute faith. And those who say, I'm kind of struggling right now. And yet Jesus says, Follow me, pursue me. I'll make you a fisherman. I'm going to send you out. I'm going to sculpt and form your faith in time to be where it should be. That's so good. I think one thing realizing working with this generation and working alongside individuals who are working with the generation and the generations to come is one thing I think many individuals want to know what they're experiencing, whether it's the doubt, fear, the worry of whatever they're walking through, they just need to be validated. Like your doubt is valid and here's why. People who followed yeah. Jesus for three years in his ministry doubted him. They, they, they doubted and they're walking with the Messiah. How much more do we need to cling on to who Jesus is and discover who he is um, through the word of God, through prayer, through a community of doing life, mentorship, discipleship, and all those different things. And with that, like when you, when you're, when you're validating the doubt that somebody's walking through, um, it's, it's important to come alongside them and help them discover like step into the journey of discovering like what's on the other mm -hmm. side of this doubt. Generally yeah. it's the breakthrough. It's the faith building exercises. It's like you go to the gym, mm -hmm. you're not going to run 10 miles. The first time you step foot on a treadmill, or you're not going to, you know, bench press 300 pounds. The first time you get like your dumbbells out or get the, the bench and the weights out and your plates on and everything, you need to exercise those mus muscles, just like you mm -hmm. exercise your faith. And doubt is kind of like the hiccups in our faith journey, right? It just is like, oh, well, there's the incline I have to run now because I'm on the yeah. treadmill. Oh, there's that extra 10 pounds you want me to put on there and like max out. So like, I think doubt, there's room, like you said, there's room for doubt, so but it's, I think, I feel like it's our job. Like my, my job yes. just by an art is to create a space where young adults can come with the questions, can come mm -hmm. with their doubts, their fears, not because we are God, but because right. we can point them to God. Yeah. You want to say mm -hmm. something? I just was like, we don't have all the answers. Correct. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that's one thing I share this with everybody that I mentor, they ask me to speak in their life. And I go, here's the thing. I want to make one thing clear. The first time I meet with them, it's like, I want to hear your story. Where are you at with mm-hmm. faith? Where are you at with God? Tell me about yourself mm-hmm. and then say, well, I want you to know that I'm more than happy to come alongside you and pray and join my faith with yours. But one thing you need to know, I am not God and I'm not the Holy spirit, but I do believe in God and have a relationship with him and I can be in tune with the Holy spirit. So if you're okay, knowing that you don't need to idolize me and you don't put me on that pedestal, we need to, you know, fix your eyes on God. And even through the doubt, we're going to focus on what he says, not what Micah says, not what Josiah says. Yes, we can be a mouthpiece for God, but let's take the spotlight off of us and shine it on what God wants to say through whatever the situation that they're walking through. And I think, no matter who we are, no matter what age and stage we're at, we're all going to experience some form of doubt in yeah. our lifetime period. Like it's a natural human thing. And you, you kind of reiterated the fact that Genesis one, two, three, like, Hey, perfect world, God, holy people. All right. Boom. Here's doubt, you know, like enter the scene, <laughs> mm-hmm. sin and doubt and everything. And you share about in your book, a season that you were wrestling yeah. with specifically when it came to doubt and finding faith. Can you just like share, how did those two come together and what did that journey look like for you? Oh, wow. Um, okay. So I, like I mentioned earlier, when we moved to, to California from England, um, our family went through a fascinating time. I love that you said the doubt is the hiccups in our faith. It reminded me of this one quote, uh, doubts are ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Um, cool. and it, it's true. And I think I first encountered that, uh, in my, in my childhood, uh, my dad was an alcoholic, uh, he was on drugs at one point he was homeless living in his car in San Diego. My mom was trying to raise my sister and I, and we're just like witnessing all of this chaos and brokenness and pain and uncertainty. And I remember even at that young age, I was in middle school and high school just processing all these things that I'm seeing and it raised questions. I, I wasn't quote unquote a Christian at that point in middle school. Um, but I still believed in God. I, I believed he was out there, but I'm wondering, God, why, why are you allowing this? And how do I process these things? And, and that doubt continued, even when my parents both became Christians and God healed their marriage. And that's a whole other crazy story to this day. They're still married, which is unbelievable. Um, after all they went through, um, but then, you know, I go on the mission field and I'm quote unquote in ministry and yet witnessing and seeing a, a ton of brokenness. When I was in Mexico, I was serving in the orphanage for disabled children and hearing their stories and the things that they went through. Um, unbelievable. You know, kids who have been abandoned by the system down there. Some had been locked in closets most of their life. One kid had cigarette burns all over his body and he had horrible horrible abuse and pain and again it's raising more at that stage in life um more philosophical questions theological questions about the goodness of god and the problem of evil which by the way the the problem of theodicy as it's called in in philosophy and theology theodicy is often the question behind the question of doubt whether it's a question of what why is this church so messed up it often has to do with the problem of injustice or, or evil right or science or uh, questions of why is the world so broken? Oftentimes it's theodicy. And I think one of the best things, I'm going a little tangent here, but one of the best things leaders can do in this moment 
is really look at that question, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, is that that is often the germ that's behind the, the roots of, of doubt and deconstruction. So I'm wrestling with that at the time, but didn't know what to do with my doubts because I was kind of in this faith tradition where I wouldn't necessarily, they gave a ton of space for doubt. Sure, there were apologetics, but the apologetics of that era uh, were more based on certainty, right? Here, you have questions? Here's a book, 101 answers to your questions, right? And they all begin with the letter P. And it was kind of this, this idea of, you memorize these points, you memorize the Romans road, you read whatever apologist, and you shouldn't have any questions at all. But I still did, right? And I began to learn that I think pursuing Jesus is less about certainty and it's more about trust. It's learning as C.S. Lewis did in his book, A Grief Observed, and his book, Kill We Have Faces, which is masterful, by the way. I now know, Lord, he said, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, all questions die away. What other answer would suffice? I think that is really where Christianity begins to come into its own, where it's not so much, here's a list of apologetic answers. I'm not knocking apologetics. Like I, a lot of the work I, I do has to do with apologetics. But I think it needs to go deeper than that when we have our questions and our doubts and our deconstruction. It's about trust it's about relationship it's about wrestling with god like jacob did all night and so i'm in this place right now where i didn't know what to do with my doubts in my early 20s mid 20s and then i became a pastor so i'm pastoring and yet still wrestling with a lot of these things i'm like i don't know what to do with the problem of evil. i don't know what to do with the weird parts of the bible i, I don't know how to process some of these things i've seen um and so when i went to oxford this was a season for me and i share this in the book in chapters three and four it was a season for me to just say, I'm going to take all these questions and doubts and just put it all out there. And just, this is going to be my season of wrestling with God. Um, I would say in some ways it was a time of deconstruction, but I never lost my faith, never walked away from the faith, but it was a time where I was more honest than I'd ever been before. A uh, part of my study at that time was spending a year looking at atheism, everything from the old guys to some of the new atheists, whether it's Camus, Nietzsche, or Dawkins, or Hitchens, and kind of studying the whole spectrum of it. And in that process, it really was healthy for me. That was my, you know, St. John of the Cross, Dark Night of the Soul. That, that was my Jacob wrestling with God season. And through that time, like the Lord just began to reveal himself in so many beautiful ways for me. And so I share that in the book. And then after that, it was kind of like, oh, okay, it's, it's not like I left my faith, but it's almost like my faith has kind of been reborn in, in a new and, and beautiful way. So in a nutshell, that's kind of my journey, my experience with it. But I'd also say, like, we're all limping. If you wrestle with God all night, like Jacob, you're going to walk away with a limp. And there, there are still some questions that I, I wrestle with. It's like I have a bucket in my brain that's labeled unanswered questions. That until, you know, a new heaven, so we're, we're not going to know the answer right. we're, until, you know, we see through a glass dimly, Paul said, but someday face to face. I look forward to that day. But until then, learning how to live in the tension of a conflicted faith. What a personal and um, intimate, like deep journey that you just shared. Mm -hmm. So I just acknowledge that. That's a tremendously personal thing to share. 
And we just want to say thank you for your willingness to, to share kind of what that process looked like for you. And um, I love also just the idea that you write about at Oxford and you've been there. I've not been there, but I feel like I've visited through some of the, the works that you've done, C.S. Lewis, many bright minds on kind of a couple ends. It seems like that's one place in space where atheistic thought and Christian thought have really wrestled for hundreds of years. Oh, and, man, it's so true. That, I mean, I, it, it's a kind of an electric atmosphere. Um, in fact, just before our interview, I was talking to one of my professors there and he's, he's Skyping and we're in Colorado right now, but uh, he, he was Skyping in from Oxford and we're, we're talking about kind of the ethos of, of the city and what it's like. And it's a place where, and I found it deeply refreshing, people take the question of God very seriously. Hmm. Uh, you're either all in or you're against it. <laughs> there isn't a whole lot of room for middle ground. And so you have some of the world's most passionate theists, guys like Alistair McGrath and John Lennox, um, the guy I was talking to today, Michael Lloyd. Uh, but then you also have some of the most passionate anti-theists, R Richard Dawkins. You know, he was a stone throw away uh, from where I studied. I didn't throw stones, uh, but he's like right there. <laughs> And uh, had fascinating conversations with him too. And it's like this environment of, of light and dark and theism and anti-theism. And I think that's a beautiful thing actually, because it really forces you to make your faith your own. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that is the goal, I think, of you know, this podcast, so many of the listeners are passionate about young adults finding their mm -hmm. own faith, mm -hmm. finding it for their, themselves. No mm -hmm. secondhand faith. You hear of like secondhand smoke, or maybe you didn't smoke, but you, you smell <laughs> like it because you were around. <laughs> and they, that can yeah. happen, so to speak, where you attended church and you heard the things, you know what mm -hmm. it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Almost like catch me if you can, right? He, he talked yeah the right talk and he learned yeah. the language of so many different professions and that's completely possible. And he had so many people fooled. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. But if he, that, that can't go hand in hand with owning your own faith right. and having it be true. And one of our yeah. good friends, he was in our wedding, Clint Reddy. He's brilliant, was a part of mm -hmm. Bethel seminary. And he shared this framework with me and I don't want to put people in boxes with it, but it's helped me understand maybe different um, streams of Christianity or different, different, thoughts and and it's kind of this box if you can picture a box and in the upper four quadrants. Yeah, four quadrants upper left is scripture some people just have a really high view of the word of god mm -hmm. other people mm -hmm. seem to really value history mm. that'd be the upper left then tradition would be um lower left you know kind of just the the things that have stuck with faith or God or Christianity throughout the centuries. And then the last one is experience. And, and what I find helpful about this framework is scripture, history, tradition, and experience. They all are a part of all of our faith journeys. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. we each have a testimony and experience. Mm -hmm. We come to know Jesus as the word that became flesh. Mm -hmm. And then there is aspects of history and tradition that inform our worldview and inform our faith. And I uh, don't know why, but I jotted that down while you were talking, because that might be helpful for some people mm -hmm. who are processing, like, where does this question mm -hmm. or doubt 
is it doubting an experience or is there congruence between scripture and our experience or our mm-hmm. history or traditions? And- but within that quadrant, I mean, there's an intersection and that's where it's like, yeah. if you're so heavy and maybe your church is heavy on the history, heavy, heavy on the experience, heavy on whatever one of those quadrants, but to realize like there's, a, it's a quadrant for a reason. And if mm-hmm. right at the center, if we could intersect and understand all four of those quadrants, that all of them play a piece mm-hmm. and a part, even though like I'm, I'm, I'm more towards, if I lean more towards the experience than the history, I needed to know the history. So when I do have an experience, like the history of the yeah. word of God or people who've gone before me, like they're all important. So you might like yeah. favor one or can naturally lean towards one, but it's important to understand maybe people you're working with, maybe yourself, your natural mm. tendencies of where you lean to know that, oh, I have the experience, but what does scripture say about this experience? So so I feel like God laid this on my heart, but is that me? Is that God? Or is that the enemy? Like, what does the word of God say? Or if it's the tradition, does the church just do it? Cause that's what we've always done. So good. Or what, what does the Bible say? So when you see the intersection, I think that's when your eyes can be open to a brighter light of like, Oh, I probably should be a little more well-rounded or mindful yeah. as a leader or a follower of mm. Christ or a pastor or whatever our role is to understand we probably have all come from one of those quadrants Yeah, yeah. <laughs> depending on the church upbringing or yeah. no church upbringing, you know? And yeah. where I wanted to land with this with you, Dominic is, you know, maybe it's, it's um, us ourselves as the listener leaning into this conversation today, because we have our own doubts, our own questions, mm-hmm. our own journey, possibly with the process of deconstruction, or maybe there's somebody in our life, our family, our friend group, or our ministry of those we lead who is, seriously doubting or even in a process of deconstruction or deconversion from faith, how do we support that friend and um, a family member or somebody who were a pastor or leader to, how do we just support them and journey together well with them? Well, first of all, what you guys just said about that, that quadrilateral uh, was beautiful. Um, Really, really really thought-provoking and it again reminds me of that story of Jacob wrestling with God and what was the question he asked him he said God said what is your name (laughs) right not because God didn't know but because he wanted to draw something out of Jacob he wanted to own his name and what you just said about you know these quadrants part of this doubt deconstruction growing in faith journey is learning to recognize what is my name right what, what is my story? Where has God taken me? How do I need to grow? And it wasn't until he really grew in this self-awareness and the humility it took and the authenticity it took to own and acknowledge that, my name's Jacob, that God was able to change him. He touched his hip and he walked with a limp, but it was the process of drawing truth out of him that faith began to grow. And so to your question, I would argue when we're helping others in that space, I think it's learning to help them understand more about their journey. What are these doubts? Why? Why is this particular issue a doubt for you? And like I mentioned earlier, theodicy, the problem of evil, is oftentimes latent. It's often a hurt they've had because of their upbringing, because of a dysfunctional faith community. Uh, because of something they've experienced personally. 
and it's getting at the question beneath the question. And this is this is why Jude 22, which I, th I think is the verse in the Bible, which gives us the pastoral response to those who doubt. It is show mercy to those who doubt. And the word mercy there, it's so, so beautiful. Mercy was used in the ancient world to describe a physician repairing a broken bone. Hmm. And if you've ever gone through that, if you ever had a broken bone, you know how painful that is because doubt is painful. Uh, Os Guinness, the, the author, you know, he, he talks about the disorientation of doubt. It's like when you're rock climbing or something and your, your feet give way. It's Psalm 73, as for me, my feet almost slip. It's a painful thing. It's like breaking a bone. And so that takes a good deal as leaders, a good deal of pastoral care and love and empathy, not, not short, uh, uncaring answers, but rather, you know, I'm here for you. One of the most loving things you can say to someone who's doubting is, I will be there for you through this season. Show mercy to those who doubt. You know, um, Anne Lamott, she talks about this. She's a, a zany and creative writer. But uh, Anne Lamott, she talks about how in the ancient world, if you cracked a, a dish or a jar um, in certain Asian cultures, rather than throwing that jar away, you would actually adorn it. Uh, you cover it with a with a gold leaf, like a very thin gold leaf, and you put it over that that broken vessel. And that wasn't because you're trying to hide the crack; rather, you're trying to draw attention to it. It was kind of their way of saying, "We're not going to pretend the brokenness doesn't exist, but rather we're going to own it and share it, and we're going to turn it into something beautiful." And I think that's what Christian community, Christian leadership, should be. Yeah, Christian community should be unvarnished vulnerability uh, without masks. And this isn't a political statement, but this isn't a COVID <laughs> statement. Um, without masks and pretense, right? It's being honest with the real and wounded you and then giving others the grace they need to walk through their season of doubt. Um, it's coming to the table together, broken bread, poured out wine, eating and drinking sharing of of the lord and allowing his brokenness to become our healing touch my wounds right that that's probably a pretty good way to help people who are doubting to say okay i'm i'm wounded too right wounded healers i'm wounded too here's what i've gone through here's how i've met jesus on the other side how can i be there for you and i think with the emerging generation that kind of loving thereness with the, with their journey and their experience is really what's going to help bring about the healing that they're searching for. That's so good. Dominic, I'm just reminded like of like the dish and the gold leaves that go over the dish and just drawing attention to that. And I think even just like our physical scars, like our scars tell a story. And I was actually in Colorado at the incline. I don't know if you've ever been to the incline or not yet. I've heard about that. it. Third story. it one of my favorite places and it's gorgeous. And as I was traveling that, um, we were hiking up it with my family. And when I got to the top, we decided we're going to run down. And on the run down, I fell and I broke my ankle and I had stitches in my right knee. And I still have the scar on my knee. And that scar is a reminder of God's goodness. I was in a season where I was physically running at a ministry pace where he was telling me to slow down and be still and listen to him to get essentially the direction for the next season of my life. 
And I was doubting, am, am I capped out in work? Am I, am I doing enough? Like, and it's not about doing enough. It's about being obedient to God. Mm-hmm. And I'm just reminded of like the scars and the stories that we get to tell should bring God honor and glory, like through the dark seasons, mm-hmm. through the doubt, through the loss, through whatever that yeah. is for myself mm-hmm. or the listener today. Like um, I reminded the song, like God can turn this bitter moment into a sweet aroma offered back to him. God can turn the bitter into sweet. And sometimes I think like what you said, like what people need to hear from other people around you is I'm here for you. You know, I'm here for you during this season. I'm here for you through thick and thin. How can I pray for you? What can I do? How can I come alongside? And I think that's a great way of essentially mentoring people and discipling people and showing them the hands of Christ. Like we should be the hands and feet of Christ. And I know that for myself and Josiah, discipleship and mentoring is huge for us um, that we just, we love coming alongside people in those journeys to help them tell the story of their scars or help them discover the root of their doubt. And I would just love to pick your brain about why do you believe that discipling the next generation and the efforts like young adults um, and young adult ministry, why are they so important and prevalent in this day and age? Oh, wow. Well, like you said, it's through the hard times that God has space to do something new in our life. And I'm reminded of that quote um, by, I think it was Barbara Brown Taylor. She said, new life starts in the dark, whether it's a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. And for those in leadership, with young adult ministry, we, we look at this, we survey the landscape spiritually right now. We see the amount of people deconstructing, leaving the faith. And that can be a cause for alarm in some ways it should be. It can be a cause for discouragement. But I would say, look for the new life that God is wanting to bring about in these dark times, in these dark places. What if God is actually preparing the soil for a new work what what if god's spirit is about to move in our nation in ways we've never seen before what if the emerging generation gen z what if they're about to be the catalyst for this new thing that god is going to do that's what i'm looking for that's what i'm expecting to be honest um you know the french philosopher uh, paul record he said it, when you read a book, you kind of go through these stages where at first there's a, a first innocence, he calls it, where you're just kind of like a blind acceptance to what you've taken in. And then you move to kind of a second stage, he calls a critical distance. And this is where you start to analyze and you're like, I don't know if I agree with this. And at that point, you're tempted to discard the book. But then he said, if you continue with it, he calls it a second innocence where we move beyond the desert of criticism to appreciation, calling, and change. And I think culturally, we're in this moment right now of critical distance, at least at a surface level, maybe a deeper level too, where we're seeing many people on leaving Christianity. I questions about the Bible. I don't like church. I'm cynical to what my parents told me. But I, I think there's something further that God is wanting to do. You know, what Paul Ricoeur called the second innocent. I think there are is a new work that God's about to unleash. I I really do believe that. And what gives me hope is the emerging generation has a fascination with truth, with justice, with compassion, 
with honestly, it looks a lot like Jesus. There is a hunger for Jesus in the emerging generation. Certain structures, certain things that have been handed on to them, there is some healthy deconstruction in there. Like if you look at a building and you see termites in the wall, they probably should be deconstructed and rebuilt. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I think they're pointing out a lot of the termites in the wall and, and some of the things that, you know, the American uh, establishment uh, of, of our certain brand of Christianity has maybe handed on. There's some health there. There's some unhealth there. They're recognizing some of the termites in the wall, as did Jesus when he was ministering, right? He was able to point out yep. some things with that certain spiritual system that had grown hypocritical. And yet it's in this space where there's the second innocence, there's in this space where there can be a reconstruction. And I am fully anticipating that. So why is it important? Because you're, as a leader, you're on the cutting edge of what God is about to do. Some would look at this and say, oh, it's post-Christian, you know, it's too secular. Well, post-Christian, that's one way of looking at it, but we could also say pre-revival, right? That's, I think, the lens we need to see. Have hope, have anticipation, have expectation. Know the people you're mentoring and serving and discipling, that God is going to use them to shape the next generation. That is spot on, Dominic, a very in tune insight with what's going on in today's world and the next generation. And I think this, this conversation and these questions about faith, about doubt and about deconstruction is something that I'm learning real time right now. And a learning experience I had is I, and I, I told you about this, Dominic, where I heard a pastor share at a conference, some amazing insight on this. And I tweeted the quote. And I proceeded to get hundreds of replies and it was about deconstruction and just kind of some, maybe five reasons of why people are deconstructing their faith. And I think they were five reasons. They weren't the only five reasons, but they may have been five. And the learning experiences, I then got to read hundreds of replies of other stories. There were other reasons as to why people were hurt or having hangups or deconstructing. And, And my takeaway in this moment is that the best mentors don't just hand out all the answers. But the best mentors, kind of like a rabbi approach, kind of like Jesus, they ask really hard questions yeah. and they draw, draw it out from within or mm-hmm. cause us to, to do an inner search. And so I'm doing a lot more listening than I think maybe I was before. And I think that's a really good thing. Maybe mm-hmm. not approaching it with a posture mm-hmm. of pride that I have some answers here, but just a posture of listening and a posture of a learner. And um, a long, lifelong learning, we love to take our relationships deeper uh, to the next level. We're going to put five minutes on the clock, Dominic, and kind of have you share five final thoughts. We call it the five and five. And Mm -hmm. the first question is a fun one. If you could describe yourself to us and the listener today in three words, which words would you choose? Oh, man. Probably the first that comes to mind is leave the parachute. And there's a backstory to that um, with uh, Luke Akins. Maybe you've heard of him. He was a crazy parachute guy who a number of years ago jumped out of a plane at 25,000 feet without a parachute onto a net. And I think if there's one way to kind of describe our life, it's that. Like those just crazy steps of faith where, it, I don't know, it seems like we go through these times where God's like, okay, pack up everything, move to the jungle in Vanuatu, pack up everything. 
you're going to head to Vaughn to, to Oxford. And we were actually in this season right now where we started this new ministry and we're in Colorado for a season. And so I think that would probably be the best way to describe the journey that God's had us on. That is a, a wild ride. So make sure you have a parachute if you actually do get in a plane though, okay? <laughs> All right. Question number two, Dominic. What is your dream in one sentence? Maybe a current dream. Wow. My current dream. You know, um, obviously, just your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. You know, we, we talked about this, and I, I desperately want to see revival in this emerging generation and being a part of serving that revival in any way possible. Um, I think that the, the stage is set for God to do that, and I believe it's going to happen. And uh, I can't wait. You know, you read about these other revivals in, in history, and I want to see that happen. In our Amen. Mm-hmm. And I think we will. Amen. May it be so. And uh, this is the curveball, at least for Micah and I, Dominic, where if you could ask us anything, any one question, what would you, what would you ask us today? Yes. What is your dream? You want to go? Sure. Our dream really, um, it happened, I think, separately while we were single and then coming together in marriage. I remember, I call it my dorm dream actually, Dominic, where I had a moment on summer break. It was 2012, I believe. And uh, I was a semester or so away from graduating college and trying to find purpose and meaning in life. And uh, I just prayed a bold prayer. I said, God, would you give me something to live for that's actually worth dying for? Mm -hmm. And what followed in those moments. I I had just read the entire book of Ecclesiastes in a sitting, Mm -hmm. which I don't even necessarily recommend because there's so (laughs) many takeaways, but what, what happened next, I remember um, sitting on my parents' couch in a living room, in their living room, just having this moment with God, where I felt that he showed me a picture of the future of what was to come in black and white. And it was young adults mm-hmm. filling a room, a space on their knees, yeah. with their hands lifted at God. And they were full out serving God. And, um, oh. you talk about revival in this generation. Oh, That's our dream in a sentence is seeing yeah. young adults serve Christ radically with their lives. And I don't know what else you would add on to that. I would add on to the dream is like, we want to get to the end of our lives, leaving an impression and a legacy bigger than ourselves in our, not in our name, but in God's name and to point people to Christ through, through thick and thin. And I think for us, it's like, I I personally, like, I want to see people come spiritually alive. Like that's one of my biggest dreams is to be um, a spiritual mother to the people who don't have one. And I think that that's very vital in this day and age to realize like we were at a conference and so many young adults had never had a parent pray over them. So I think that that's important to step in now as parents, we can do that before. I was like, well, we're just married, but we can pray for your future spouse. But to know that we could, we have an opportunity and anything is, um, anything is, you know, possible with God. So it's like teaming up with him. So I think getting to the end of our life, Beginning with the end in mind, I think is one of the biggest dreams I have for the the generations to come and for the the legacy of the people that we leave behind whenever God takes us home. And um, I I don't know if that's one sentence, but that's kind of the heartbeat behind everything (laughs) why we do. do, So (laughs) seriously, so beautiful. I mean, we're we're seeing a generation of Esau's that haven't heard the blessing 
right? Bless me also, bless me also. Mm-hmm. Because they haven't heard that from their parents. And right. as, as leaders, we have that opportunity to speak blessing and favor in the presence of God and hope and faith into the next generation. Yeah. Amen. That's so good. Sheesh. That's so good. Okay. Here's one of our favorite questions. It's question number four. We ask this because so many of our listeners, they're young, they're starting out in their first role, they're getting out of college, they're going to seminary, maybe they're landing their first job officially, and they're they're adulting and trying to figure things out as a leader. Um, would you be willing to share one of your epic failures or something that you've experienced in ministry? It can be a funny story. It can be an embarrassing moment. It can be any direction you want to go. Would you share just a little clip of what maybe we shouldn't do in ministry either. You can go there too. <laughs> You've learned. Oh my gosh. I, wow. That, that, that's an incredible question. And I could think of so many, to be honest, <laughs> failure, epic fail moments. You know, I think of the early days when as a pastor, it just had this pressure. I've got, I've got to be the Bible answer guy. Right. And so if, People have doubts or uncertainty. Okay, here's your list of answers, and you know, call me tomorrow or whatever. Um, so that that in the early days, certainly that. Um, I'd say in, in recent days, to be totally vulnerable, um, maybe a failure to identify. I mean, I knew it was there, but not to the degree that we've witnessed some of the political divides in our nation and what that has done to Christianity in America. Um, It's a discipleship moment, I think, that we're in. It's actually a crisis of discipleship because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We're citizens of of heaven, Paul said. Um, Our politic is Jesus is king, to quote Kanye. Um, That is our politics. And we, we live in a moment where people identify more with a certain political strand, whether conservative or liberal, uh, putting that ahead of Jesus. But you cannot reduce the ethics of Jesus to your politics. Mm. That, I think, is an urgent space that we need to do a better job as a church. And certainly one that I recognize in my life, like, oh, wow. I didn't realize some of the deep-seated unhealth that people had in trying to uh, pigeonhole their faith into a certain political system when the way of Jesus kind of transcends that. Um, And we need to learn how to embrace the awkwardness that you're not always going to fit in exactly with a certain political party because our citizenship is in heaven. That's good. That's a much broader conversation, but in a nutshell, it's important to go there. Mm-hmm. It's ourselves yeah. and um, just to evaluate, to have that moment of like, mm-hmm. just the aha moment, I think mm-hmm. is key. And Dominic, as we close this conversation, um, it's been such a blessing to Mike and I, and I am looking forward to a friendship that's to come with you. Of just, Likewise. I have so much to learn, so mm-hmm. many questions to follow up with and uh, appreciate your spirit of humility and um, insight and wisdom. And as we close, how we like to just encourage the listener is as young leaders, maybe a college pastor, young adult ministry leader, picture the room is filled with them. And we hand you the microphone to give them a piece of wisdom or insight or encouragement. What would you charge them with today? Yeah. 
you're making more of a difference than you know. Um, I, I think one of the big distractions and pains that we carry as leaders is that sense of, is it making a difference? Or you see people walking away or deconstructing or numbers getting small or whatever the case may be. And we feel disheartened, we feel discouraged. But what you're doing, you're planting seeds that may take years to finally come to fruition, but they will. Your life is making a difference. Your words are making a difference. Your messages are making a difference. The way that God has wired you, the gifts that he's given to you, it is making a difference. And don't let the enemy tell you otherwise. Mm -hmm. Stay strong, stay the course, because what you're sowing into is going to reap a harvest. That's awesome. And for the listener, if you feel like you're doubting or you're in a discouraging place, or maybe you're even doubting the role of which God has you in currently, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to discover what God has for you, but don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Follow, follow what God has for you. Surround yourself with friends and family that can hold up your arms and you are making a difference, whether you feel like it's big or small to know that your words carry weight. Your leadership is leaving a legacy and what you um, fill your time with is you're going to reap a harvest of it. So if you're spending time with God, spend more time with God. If you are wanting to grow in whatever area, we just want to encourage you to, to grow during this holiday season, or maybe into the new year as we're airing this episode and just enjoy the journey and just be present. One of the best things I heard, it was with Jasmine Roth. She's on HGTV and she's one of my favorite people to watch with home renos, but she had posted something on Instagram and it said, being present is the best present. So learning how to be present in the moments, the big and small, um, God is really going to shine through. So um, Dominic, thank you so much for what an amazing conversation that we've been able to have today. Thank you. Such an honor to be on with you guys. God bless you. I love what you're doing. I look forward to talking to you. Sounds amazing. And I have enjoyed your book so much. Highly recommend it. If you want to find out more about Dominic Doan, Faith in the Dark and Pursuing Faith, you can connect with us in the show notes and at youngadults.today. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening to today's conversation on the Young Adults Today podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. I'm getting charged up right now, yeah.